my world, the world of human rights and business is very complicated. Yeah. It's not as though I have the answer to everything. I know what the problems are. And I know that companies need to be doing more than they're doing. That was Professor Michael Posner. Previously, he served as the Assistant Secretary of State in the Obama administration, where he was the chief advisor to Secretary of State Clinton on all matters pertaining to human rights, traveling to over 50 countries with her. Speaking to Professor Posner was a one-of-a-kind experience, and we were excited to have the opportunity to hear about some of the most pressing issues at the intersection of business and human rights. As you heard, multinational companies face increasing pressures in making hard decisions. So how can they balance a pro-business model while maintaining high standards to their communities? In this episode, we sit down with Professor Posner to hear his insights on the Uyghur Muslims in China, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi in Saudi Arabia, and how businesses sometimes enable human rights crises. Listen as we discuss how all of us, including students just starting their careers, can use business for a cause to shape the future good. Hi, my name is Hannah. And my name is Shreyas. Welcome to Everything's Not Okay. Thank you so much for your time again. So to start off, could you speak a little bit about your experience under Obama's administration? Yeah, I was uh, uh, nominated and appointed by the Obama administration to run uh, Bureau of the State Department on Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Um, Secretary of State was uh, Hillary Clinton. She really... Um, you know, interviewed me, said, I want you to come do this. And I ran a bureau with uh, 200, 250 people, um, basically looking globally at what's going on in the world. Um, and so I had a, I had a terrific experience, mm -hmm. actually. She was a great boss, very supportive of what I was doing. Obama and the administration were very human rights oriented. Mm -hmm. So I had uh, three and a half action-packed years where I um, I feel like we accomplished a lot, and they're hard issues. They'll always yeah, be hard. Right. There's always competing interests, and human rights are not always at the top of everybody's agenda, to right. say the least. But I felt we really did make a difference in a lot of in a lot of ways. This is the first ever human rights division at a business school, too. So, could you speak a little bit about your mindset going into this and? why you felt it was necessary <clears throat> to implement a center like this at a business school. Yeah, so there's a couple of things in my past that led to this. One is that in the 90s, in the 1990s, when I was at Human Rights First, I began sort of, not sort of, I began working with companies, um, especially in the apparel sector, some in the mining sector, and uh, one uh, very noteworthy example, um, Levi Strauss was a privately held company and somewhere in the early 90s um, there was a 60 Minutes broadcast that showed um, a Levi factory in Saipan hmm. producing blue jeans using workers, young women mostly, from China in terrible conditions and they had the cameras in there and the whole thing and the people at Levi Strauss the Haas family was privately held 
were very upset by yeah. what they saw. They didn't own the factory, and they frankly didn't really know what was going on there. And so they called me, somebody from Levi's called me and said, you know, we're sort of in shock. Yeah. And so we had a conversation that led to them being, I think, the first company to have a supplier code of conduct on human rights and labor. I went into government. I realized that the, at least the U.S. government, didn't really focus on the human rights responsibilities of American companies. We had sort of two speeds in government. One speed was promote exports, improve the balance of payments and the like, so American companies ought to be you know, operating without constraints, tariffs, quotas, and the like. And then the other was public-private partnerships. So a technology company can help the refugee bureau uh, track refugees, let's say, in the former Yugoslavia with their technology. Private industry helping government do its job. Right. And so my question always was, well, what about American companies, American-based companies that are operating abroad where there are these human rights-related issues? And the answer was, well, we sort of don't do that. We don't have a, it's not a priority. So I made it my priority. And we set up or we helped build a unit in the, in the bureau I was running and built it up to be sort of a part of what the U.S. government did. So that sort of got me thinking, boy, this is a big subject. The government clearly needs to be nudged. Companies need to be nudged. And when I came out of government with a colleague from the State Department, we wound up at NYU. And I went to John Sexton, who was then the president of NYU, and said, you know, I don't know where I'm going to land, but I really want to work on the relationship of business and human rights. And he said, you know, maybe you ought to go to the law school. And I said, no, I really want to be in the belly of the beast. I want to be in a business school. Wow. Peter Henry was then the dean. I came to see Peter, and right away he said, this fits in entirely with my sense of what Stern ought to be doing. Mm -hmm. and, and here we landed. So the government, the U.S. government, has taken more of a direct stance against China with the Uyghurs, mm -hmm. and they even implemented the Uyghur Labor Prevention Act, mm -hmm. I believe, into bill. But a lot of companies, for example, Nike or Tesla, they haven't really taken direct mm -hmm. stance, even though their business model directly impacts the Uyghur population. And they have, some companies even have tried to speak up against it, but then they face this immense backlash from the Chinese community. So what do you kind of see as the solution in holding these companies accountable and actually implementing steps? Yeah, it's a great question. And so a, a couple of words of background on that. One is um, there's always been tension between the Chinese government and some of the autonomous regions, uh, Tibet, Xinjiang, etc. And with the, we with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, it's gotten a lot worse, I would say, especially since 2017. The companies that are operating, Western companies operating in China, probably are uncomfortable, I'm sure they're uncomfortable about connections to Xinjiang province, but there are two things that are motivating them to try to stay in China. One is that it's the manufacturing center of the world still. There's some 
you know, it's, some of it is going other places because costs of labor are yeah. going up, but it is still overwhelmingly the biggest manufacturing center in the world by, it, it's twice as much as any other country. Second thing is it's the, it is about to be the world's largest market. And so you have a consumer population um, with, again, within years, within a few years, there's going to be more middle, upper middle class Chinese families than U.S. and European families combined. And so if you're running a consumer products company, you know that China is an essential place to get things done and to sell those things. And so the the uh, magnetic force of going and staying in China is very strong. Right. What the U.S. and here the leverage is the U.S. government. You mentioned the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. It passed Congress in December, unheard of, with 406 votes in the House, three against. You you probably find very few issues where you could get 406 members of. Congress to agree on anything, yeah. you know, wave a flag on the 4th of July, there'd probably be six <laughs> or seven people that would say, well, I don't want you to do that for mm -hmm. one reason or another. So the government has spoken. The law went into effect in June, and it says in a very direct way that the presumption is what I just talked about. The presumption is that forced labor is the order of the day in Xinjiang. And if you're going to import things into the United States, you have to prove that your products are not the subject of forced labor. Right. Very hard to do when it's almost impossible for outsiders to get access to Xinjiang, to go to a factory, mm -hmm. yeah. to go to a farm. And so these companies, whether it's Nike or other apparel companies, are caught in a bind because 80% of the cotton in China comes from Xinjiang. You're producing garments or textiles. The odds are some of that cotton's going to yeah. find its way into your product. Even more extreme are the solar panel manufacturers and importers, because 96 or 98 percent of all the solar panels are produced in one way or another with Chinese input, and the silicon polysilicons coming from Xinjiang. So companies are, you know, between a rock and a hard place. And I'm sympathetic to how difficult it is, but you have a law. Mm -hmm. uh, for the last month and a half, there has been a law in the United States that says you can't do this. And I imagine we're going to start to see more and more enforcement of that. And I think if you're a Nike or you're a solar panel manufacturer or importer, you're going to say, gosh, what are we supposed to do now? The last thing you said, I, th I just want to say a word about. I think you're right that a number of companies, Nike and H&M and Intel, the NBA, the National Basketball Association, have gotten caught where somebody says something and the government picks them off, the Chinese government, mm -hmm. and makes a, a kind of a lesson for everybody. And so if you say you're not using Xinjiang cotton, Nike or H&M or Adidas, we're going to use Chinese social media and we're going to go after you. We're going to have people standing in front of your stores and telling people not to go into your stores. The NBA, the National Basketball Association, they took them off Chinese uh, television and they canceled some games that were yeah. supposed to take place. 
my advice to companies is not, you know, leave China um, or stop doing the right thing. It's that it's important for companies, especially in the same industry, to have a common plan. Um, it's very, it, right now the Chinese are calling the tune, the government's calling the tune. They're, they're picking off one or another and isolating them, and then a lot of these companies panic. Imagine if all the garment producers, all of the apparel companies, or all of the tech companies came together and said, here's what we're going to say as a group. Mm -hmm. um, the, com the government would have a lot harder time. And, yeah. I, and I, I know, I mean, I now chair this organization called the Fair Labor Association. There's 60 apparel companies that are part of it. We've said since 2019, we're urging the companies to move away from Xinjiang Cotton. All of the companies have made a commitment to do that, but there's 60 of them, including Nike and Adidas and Patagonia and uh, Hugo Boss and, and a bunch of others. It's harder for the government to deal with the Fair Labor right. Association than if it's only one by one. So one of the things I think American and European companies have to be smarter about a collective strategy mm -hmm. to really challenge the government, the Chinese government, when they decide to pick on somebody. So <coughs> tying this to the foreign policy that we've seen from the Biden administration, the two things specifically I wanted to talk about was one, them labeling what's happening with the Uyghur Muslim population as a genocide, but um, <coughs> simultaneously there's still this need to work with the Chinese <coughs> government, whether it's climate goals or economic goals during COVID. And then the second I would look at is Saudi Arabia, where there's the case of Jamal Khashoggi, there's <coughs> the case of Yemen, yet we still need to work with them now more than ever on oil. So how, when, when the leverage is not in our favor, where we actually need to work with them, how does the interest of human rights come into play? <coughs> I think it's, I, I certainly understood it before I went into government, but <coughs> it became a lot clearer to me that um, the government has multiple interests. Human rights, I would say, always has to be on the table. Um, I would push, I did when I was in government, for it to be an important part of what is discussed. But I'm, I never was of the view that the only thing that you ought to do is worry about human rights. There's strategic interests, there are economic interests, there are political, diplomatic interests, all that plays in. And so, you know, it's, it's always going to be a uh, com conversation where you have to look for the moments where you can push the human rights agenda and recognize sometimes it's just not going to happen. And that was a constant, you know, I did four human rights dialogues with the Chinese. Incredibly difficult conversations. Um, but there were moments, again, we also did a legal experts dialogue. And there you had some Chinese officials who were concerned about things like bail reform and pretrial detention, issues they were dealing with that we deal with, mm. and we found some common ground. So I'm always looking for common ground. I'm also always looking to give credit where credit is due. I tell my classes the biggest human rights development of the last 50 years is the dramatic reduction in poverty. If you look, 1980, 77% of people living in 
East Asia were living below the poverty level. Mm-hmm. And now, if you look at China, that was largely a China issue, but it was Southeast Asia. Less than 5% of the Chinese are living below the extreme mm-hmm. poverty level. They've created, a, again, a middle class with 300 million families. That's an extraordinary achievement. Right. And so I, when I would meet with the Chinese, I would always talk about the economic miracle. Mm-hmm. They were proud of it. They have every reason to be proud of it. And then I do the but. Um, there are things that come along with that progress. You have to also um, think about you know, democratizing the system, giving people a right to speak, to, to vote, to you know, express their religious uh, uh, identity. So these things are hard. They're right. hard, and I think there always is a, you know, a balancing that goes on. And human rights, the, the important thing is that human right, rights not be left off the table. Saudi Arabia. We have relied on Saudis for oil for a long time. The Saudis are our strategic partner in the interaction with other Gulf states, especially Iran. I'm not a big fan of the way the Saudis run their government, both domestically and I'm particularly perturbed by or as perturbed by their influence in other Muslim states. The Saudi, you know, Wahhabi money has gone into South Asia, for example, Mm -hmm. and I saw this in Pakistan and Afghanistan, the religious schools, the madrasas funded by Saudi charities are promoting extremism. And I think that's outrageous and we need to say it. And believe me, I Mm -hmm. did say that when I was in government and others as well. But you can't just ignore the relationship. You need to be straightforward. And I, when I wrote about it, I, and I talked to people in the government, I'm certain that President Biden went in and said to MBS, to the crown prince, uh, you know, I am still of the belief that you have, uh, you know, responsibility for killing Jamal Khashoggi. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a hard thing for a leader to do. Right. And I think he deserves credit for going in and opening up that conversation, not at a distance, but sitting in the room with the guy mm-hmm. and saying these, ma- these issues matter to us. Our relationship is going to be affected by this. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're going to stop any conversation, but it, it's a huge impediment. Mm-hmm. So now kind of going to like the future of human rights, um, there was there was you know a lot of writing in the past about how the spread of t- technology and social media is going to make it a lot harder for authoritarians to stay in power, but kind of the opposite has happened under the Xi Jinping administration, where they were able to leverage it to enhance and track so many more people, break up <clears throat> you know secret meetings and things like that. They're able to keep a much better watch, and I'm curious forces like that and other forces that are play. How does it make you feel about where we're heading in terms of human rights? Well, that, the, the big complicated question that you're raising really is how do you use technology as a force for good and how do you uh, mitigate the damage? Mm-hmm. And both of those things are happening at a very fast pace. Mm-hmm. So again, when I was in the government, we started an internet freedom initiative. Secretary Clinton gave three big speeches. We did a whole-of-government approach. We got U.S. government funding to support new technologies to promote human rights, to train activists, to deal with disinformation and the like. We're now, 
the, the downsides of technology are now more obvious. Mm -hmm. And they include what you're describing, the surveillance state. Again, Chinese have turned that into an art form, uh, especially in Xinjiang. It's really like the laboratory experiment of how far can you go. You know, you're not allowed to walk the streets. You're not allowed to leave your home in mm -hmm. Xinjiang without your cell phone because they want to track you every second of the day. Where are you? Who are you meeting? Yeah, there are, I saw there are little stations yeah. where you have to, like, there's, like, a face scanner <coughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's Orwellian. It really is a scary thing how much technology is being used as a force um, now to control. Um, privacy is uh, an afterthought, to say the least. And then you have, you know, Chinese have been very effective in building their own technologies. Again, even 10 years ago when I was in government, the assumption was U.S. or Western technologies were the strongest. Chinese were making things. They weren't creating things. Look at Huawei. Uh, it is the leading 5G uh, manufacturer by far. They're producing a better product for a lower price. Um, does that mean that they're going to be the best forever? I don't know. But they sure have a head start. And there's all the fears about stuff being embedded in their technology that will provide um, information to the Chinese government. I worry about that. So we're in a pretty, I would say, um, we're in a fraught moment here. Mm. And so the goal is, one, how do you find ways to kind of make sure that their Western technologies or technologies coming from democratic state, Taiwan produces the chips. Right. 70% of them, we just passed the Chips Act because that's a scary thought that one country, any country, has that kind of dominance. Um, so we need to be smarter, whether it's on solar panels or chips or you know, uh, 5G, whatever, make sure that, that that an authoritarian government doesn't control the technology or the access to technology. But we also have to see the benefits of having more information, greater information. The internet is a, is a, is a, uh, a democratizing force. Again, you know, going back to the Arab Spring. People took to the streets because they could talk to each other online rather than sitting in coffee shops in Cairo. And so we need to maximize the good, mitigate the harms, mm -hmm. and realize that, that it's true in a lot of things in our life. Technology moves faster than our ability to regulate it, to think about its ethical dimensions, and to figure out how do you what are the rules of the road? Mm -hmm. Again, that's sort of a lot of what we're looking at here. We're, we've spent a lot of time looking at disinformation and harmful content among social media companies. How do you, what are the rules of the road? And what's the responsibility of a Facebook or a YouTube? To what extent does the, do governments need to get in the mix? How do you protect free speech? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, minimize the worst aspects of you know, willful disinformation that goes viral. So what would be your advice to undergrad students like Shreyas and I entering the workforce, entering these companies, and <coughs> I guess shaping the future of how companies interact with human rights? So I'd say two things. One, um, if these issues are of interest, you're in luck because they're not going away. 
and there's going to be a need for future business leaders to be smart about these issues, to be well informed. I tell my students, you know, I'm teaching you for your seventh or your eighth job. When you go to work for Goldman Sachs or McKinsey, <laughs> Um, the first thing they're going to ask you is not what you think about human rights in Xinjiang or in Saudi Arabia. They're going to tell you, here's your job and go yeah. do it. If you're in the C-suite, if you're running a big company or you're in a you know, senior person in an investment firm or consulting firm, these are the things that really matter. These are the things that keep the CEOs of the world up at night um, because they are seeing globally what they're up against. And they're seeing what I'm seeing, which is big, complicated world. We don't have the control we want. There's a governance gap. We, you know, I want to live, they want to live in a world where there are 193 governments that are protecting their own people. We don't live in that world. We live in a world where majority people are living in places where the governments are either unwilling or unable to protect their own people. And so that throws governments, thro I mean, throws companies, thrusts them into a role that they're not very comfortable with. But I would say for students, heck, this is a growth market. There is no doubt in my mind in 10 years, there are going to be more companies grappling with these issues seriously. And they're going to be looking, hey, who took the human rights course? What do you know about this? I hear it already. I mean, we've a number of people who've worked here, students that have been in my classes, are getting jobs already in fairly uh, important jobs yeah. in companies that you've heard of. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's only going to continue. Again, I would say be prepared, you know, have a moral compass, have a moral north star, uh, so you know what you believe and what you're willing, not willing to do. Be patient in terms of becoming the expert and going into the CEO and telling them how to run the business. But be ready when the moment strikes and somebody says, we need help, raise your hand and say, this is something I care about, want to do, and I want to be part of the team that's going to figure this out.